The thriving multicultural neighborhood that you so love wasn't always that way. When you first arrived, it was a place of fear and violence and thus sadness. A group of courageous and passionate community leaders, including you, set out to change that. You talked to the neighborhood elders. You listened. You started living and leading by example. And one of the driving forces of your actions, then and now, is the vital importance of outdoor spaces, places where people meet and come together and share their lives. You are listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. Back in 1997, we learned about what was generally understood by the Parks Department to be the worst park in town. More trash, more rubble, more abandonment. It was known as Watts Branch. Uh, named after a slaveholding family that the stream running through it had been named after. Uh, It was the longest municipal park in the city, and it was the longest forgotten. We were asked to kind of come in and try to find a way of getting it going. And as we did our thing of walking and saying hi and learning from the elders their memories and the kids their dreams, there was a young boy back in the 60s named John Hatcher, who at the age of eight saw that the First Lady of the United States was leading these efforts to beautify the country where she said, look to your left, look to your right. Do you see a thing of beauty? If not, plant a tree, a shrub, or a bush. Actually, she said bush. (laughs) He was wondering, if she's going to do that all in all the fancy places, why not in his neighborhood? And so he wrote a letter and sent it to the First Lady saying, Dear Mrs. Johnson, if you can put flowers in all the fancy places, can I please have an azalea bush for my public housing yard? And a couple months later, a representative of the First Lady showed up in his public housing yard with not one, but a whole grove of native azaleas, and together with the then-appointed mayor of the District of Columbia, and they planted these azaleas. And a year after that, the First Lady of the United States came out. Turns out she used to open some of her mail, and she happened to open the letter from John Hatcher, and it moved her. And she said, this is exactly right. We need to do this. We didn't have the phrase environmental justice then, But that's really what she meant. She never liked the word beautification. She was trying to do something deeper. And so that became the beginning of that stream valley actually being thought of as a park and inspiring the people in the community to think about how can we connect this together? Can we have trails? Can we have playgrounds? Can we have schools that tie everybody into this? Well, years later, we we tracked down John Hatcher, who still lives in the stream valley with his mom, now in his 50s. And we tracked down an aide who had worked with Mrs. Johnson back in the day. And we invited her to come out to plant azaleas, a whole grove of native azaleas in the part of the stream below where John had lived at Lincoln Heights Public Housing. Now in her 80s, Marie Ritter came out with us and we brought a little folding chair and we set up the chair and she sat down as we planted the azaleas in the middle of the woods with John Hatcher. And just when we thought we were done and we were going to leave, Marie Ritter pulled out a little folded piece of paper and unfolded and said, I have something I want to share with you. And it was a note, which Lady Bird Johnson had dictated to her daughter on her deathbed. She had died just two weeks earlier. Dear good people of the Watts Branch Stream Valley, it does my heart such good to know that after all these years, you are still carrying the torch for our beautiful park and stream. Carry on in Godspeed, Lady Bird Johnson. And so in that is kind of everything, you know, here's this one kid living in public housing who just thought, you know, I deserve to have an azalea just like anybody else. And that became the genesis of a park that's now become a model of what communities can do to reclaim the earth 
And uh, that's a story that's now reached people around the world. This week, azaleas from the First Lady. Saying hello to everybody you meet and introducing the Embassy of the Earth. Join us on a journey from Washington, D.C. to Cairo, Egypt, and the vital importance of community. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And that's what we call cultural exchange. I'm Steve Coleman. I'm the director and president of Washington Parks and People, which is a local community-based charity here in Washington, D.C., whose mission is to advance park-based community health. And I was part of the Professional Fellows Program, hosting uh, fellows from the Middle East here in D.C., and then I became a fellow myself going the other way to Cairo two years ago in 2017. Well, my personal evolution was that that I came to D.C. to kind of help save the world, like a lot of idealistic people do. And I worked on all kinds of global issues. But I found that I wasn't really involved in my own neighborhood. And that came home powerfully when a boy was killed next to my home in 1990 on Dr. King's birthday and died in the arms of my housemate. As a result of that experience, I was sort of shocked into shifting to doing a lot more to act locally. I could think globally, but I really needed to act in my own neighborhood. And so we co-founded this effort to use the park as a base of countering violence, countering divisions, and bringing people back together to forge real community across inner city DC. What we found in that work was that a key thing that was missing was this whole idea of thinking outside. As a society, as a world, we're putting so much of our focus, our time, our energy, our money into all the inside solutions. You know, when we talk about health, we talk about emergency rooms, crime, it's prisons, food, it's supermarkets, education, it's classrooms, policy, it's hearing rooms. We think that there's a key thing missing. Certainly you need all those things, but the outside where nature and community, where the human and natural communities have a chance to get come together, that's a place where we can really do amazing things to change how we live together on this planet. Here in D.C., we are the greenest city in North America. We have the highest percentage of public green acreage, but we haven't really been using it, haven't really been taking care of it, hasn't been woven into our lives. And so we're trying to help people make the playgrounds come back to life, to plant community gardens and mini farms. We work on uh, growing food year-round in several places in the city, but we're also growing community. So we do arts, we do music, we do job training in the parks, using the parks as a base of helping people coming out of prison to learn basic skills so they can get back into the job market without having to turn back to crime. And so it's been really kind of thrilling to see all the ways that this simple idea of getting outside and connecting with people in the parks, we can make community be the thing it is, which is, I think, the most powerful force on the planet.
at some level, people know they need this and they want this. Every kid has an innate desire to be outside and connect with nature and with everybody else in the neighborhood. But we tend to kind of disregard that. And so, yeah, it can be really tough for us to get that idea across because so much of the money and the focus and the priorities are, are inside. And so we have to be creative in how we invite people outside again. We use music, we use storytelling, we use play. Uh, you know, we're the only country on the face of the earth which has the pursuit of happiness in our enabling documents. But we don't really value play the way we could. Something that we might have taken for granted in how we grew up is something that kids today can't really take for granted. The idea of playing in nature, that's the space that we're working in. And we're always kind of playing with new ways of getting people to both think and be outside. any money. People thought we were absolutely crazy. The park had been written off. There were people in the Office of Management and Budget who were talking about tearing the park down, that it was just an anachronism. There were too many shadows and too many hidden places. And I think it was really changing the way that people thought about that. And we've told that story now all over the country and all over the world as we've learned about other people doing the same kind of work. And that became the underpinning of projects that were much bigger and tougher and required all kinds of more complex funding and partnership, like our work at Marvin Gaye Park, which has been amazing. But none of that would have been possible without the simple things that we did when we were in neighborhood crime patrol, having to say hello to everybody we met uh, during that horrific, frightening time, walking around at night in the winter, just trying to stop the killing. And as we said hello to people, we learned. We learned about their lives. We learned about things we thought we knew about the neighborhood that we didn't really know. And we found the power of community. You know, there's that great line that gets attributed to Goethe. I don't think it was Goethe. I think it might have been a Scottish mountaineer. But whoever said it, it's sort of at the center of our, our philosophy. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. America is a revolutionary idea. And when we settle back and wait for others to do things or blame others or decide that we're powerless, we become part of the problem. And what we try to do in Parks and People is to say, we all have a responsibility to be part of the change that we seek. And that means we have to help make it happen and not wait. So there are times when we just do it. And there's a lot of power in that. And sometimes you have to ask, ask forgiveness afterwards. You know, we did a simple thing of saying, you know, we're one city here in Washington. Washington is not one city. It's many divided places. But we wanted to say, geologically, environmentally, we're one city. And so why not be one city as human beings? And so we started the idea, which my dog actually inspired on these long walks as she was dying. She was trying to show me the ancient ridgeline Native American trail that connects our park with the Potomac River. And she did before she died. She took me on those miles long journeys to show me this path, which we then turned into a hike we do across the whole city called the Washington Ridge Crossing. And in our world where we've so defined what is other what is outside, what is frightening, as we've increasingly retreated into our virtual realms, we found there's something really revolutionary about just walking across the city. 
it wasn't anything official. We didn't have any permit to do it. We just did it. And then um, before long, the Washington Post did a whole full page story about us walking across the city. And then that year we were in drenching rain. It was like walking across Vietnam. It was a beautiful story. So there's power in just doing it. I lived next to Central Park in Manhattan when that was at rock bottom in the mid-70s, when people thought of that as the worst urban park in the world. That was the reputation. To see that come back to life through music, through play, through dance, through uh, just the joy of human and natural community, that has been my life's inspiration. I wanted to see how we could breathe new life into these forgotten parts of our cities. There were so many amazing, fanciful things that really kindled what I call the invisible park, the invisible landscape. It's that the, the park of the soul, of the spirit, you know, the, the landscape of freedom, of justice, of dreams. You know, we live in a time when people are asking, can we really believe in our dreams anymore? And America has so often stood up for that idea that, that we can if, if, we, if we really hold to what's in our hearts. We found that this stuff really works. This stuff is powerful. It's deep. It's, it's joyful. And for me now to go into Meridian Hill Malcolm X Park, where we started, which was basically a no man's land when we started, the police had even given up patrolling it because they said they didn't have enough officers to even go in there. And to see this place where people were dying on a Sunday afternoon when the drum circle is going and the acro yoga and the tightrope walking and the sunbathing and the reading and the picnicking, it's just so thrilling to see what happens when we give each other a chance to be in real community with each other and with the land. It's been a funny thing to have come to DC to work on the planet and then work on my neighborhood and find that by working on my neighborhood, I could actually do more to connect with the rest of the planet because there is so much commonality. You know, my late mentor, Josephine Butler, who was the daughter of sharecroppers, granddaughter of enslaved people, this amazing, deep community activist and poet and artist and dreamer who used to talk about big things that need to happen to make the world a better place. And people would say, well, that's going to take a long time. And she'd say, exactly. That's why we have to get started right now. hosted people from all over the world in the parks in DC and we've learned from them and we've gone to their places. My work with the Professional Fellows Program and Legacy International took me into a deeper level of that where we were hosting fellows from Egypt, from Morocco, from various parts of the Middle East and um, getting them involved kind of deeply in our work and learning through that a little bit about their work but I would later learn how little we really did get from just seeing them here in the States when I got the chance to go to Cairo as a fellow myself. I thought I was going to tell people in Egypt all about community and the power of community. Boy, was I ever wrong. I had so much more to learn than to teach. And I think I had some things to share, but there was far more coming at me than coming out of me. 
<laughs> my escort in this was my colleague who'd been a, a fellow of ours from from Cairo, Zainab Abbas, who is just a, an amazing uh, person who really knows the story of Egypt. She's a specialist in the antiquities and, and cultural preservation and the community interface with that and took me all around Cairo, showing me her world through her eyes. And I was continually struck by the depth, the power, the sheer joy of community in the middle of Cairo. I was not prepared at all for how much I needed to be taking notes and learning. It was just thrilling for me. It's, it's something that still resonates with me and reminds me that when we think we've all got it, you know, we've got it all going on here in the States, we have a lot to learn. Zainab decided that we would go to, there aren't that many parks in Cairo, but she decided she was going to take us to this big park called Al-Azhar Park. And we were walking around, it was all pretty and it was nice and it was okay. But then we met a group of college students who were celebrating somebody's birthday. They invited us to celebrate with them. And we had an open afternoon and we ended up playing with them in the park for the entire afternoon. We were playing tag and we were, you know, playing music and we were sharing stories. The deep bond that happened in that afternoon in the park was unlike anything that I had expected or had really frankly ever experienced, even though I'm a park guy. And while we were in the park, we encountered children everywhere we went. And I stood out like a sore thumb there. Tourism is down in Egypt. You know, there haven't been a lot of Americans going there. I didn't know how that would be. And the kids were just so fascinated by me as this funny looking foreign guy, this big white guy you know, lumbering around, but also so eager to connect, so eager to break through this. There obviously was trepidation and fear, but it was clear that their joy and their eagerness to make that connection was stronger than any fear or concern. And they were mauling me with their eagerness to touch and tell me things and show me things and have pictures taken with them. I felt like some kind of rock star. I've never experienced anything like that anywhere. There were hundreds of them. Everywhere we went, uh, all through Cairo, there were kids wanting to connect. And that's something that I will carry with me the rest of my life. learned so many things as an American. I learned that we're much more important than we realize and probably much more clueless, um, that we really are looked up to, that people really, really respect us and really, really care about what we are doing and saying in our lives and in the world. America is a mover and a shaker in this world and the whole world is kind of watching us. But there's so many ways that we just profoundly don't really know that much about the rest of the world. And that is to both the peril of the rest of the world and our own. I think that people think that America is out to take over the world, that America is trying to tell everybody else what to do. And there certainly have been times when we do that. But I, I really want to show that America is a diverse place, that America is a complex place, uh, that America is a place where dreams can come true. 
and America is a place that's, that knows it still has a lot of work to do in addressing the places where the dreams have not come true. And that injustice and, and division are things that uh, we all face all over the world and we can learn a lot from, from everybody and how we deal with those challenges. We were in uh, one of the poorer parts of Cairo, around the corner from the City of the Dead, where people are so poor that they're actually living in graves. And we came upon a bakery, which was nothing more than a hole in the wall where there was an oven. The dough could be slid in there and the loaves pulled out and he would sell things from this hole in the wall. He motioned us over and insisted that I take three of his loaves of bread and refuse to take any money in one of the poorest parts of Cairo. It's just it's a simple act of the kindness to strangers that really moved me deeply. To this day, I just, I, I just think about that. But I found that kind of hospitality, deep hospitality everywhere we went. I had never been in a mosque in my entire life. I you know, don't think of myself as closed-minded or anything. I just never felt like I would be particularly welcome. I figured I don't really know what to do. And so Zainab took me into mosques when it was time for her to pray. And I got to know mosques. I don't know. It was, it was really surprisingly eye-opening. I wouldn't think it would really matter what kind of a church you're in or what kind of religious place, but it kind of opened my eyes. You know, I I didn't realize how much Islam is about peace, like the other major religions of the world. It may sound really ignorant, but I just had no idea on learning that by seeing it in practice, seeing people praying to their God as others pray to their God uh, in other ways. Reminded me of my grandfather, who was a biblical scholar who traveled the Middle East and Palestine when that was Palestine and when he was working on translating the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, he was writing the books of Job and Ezekiel. But he always knew that as a devout Christian, every path to faith was equally valid. And I saw that. There's an American idea that anybody can start anything. You know, de Tocqueville said, we're a nation of joiners and we can start anything. And we do that. We do that all the time. I've done it in my own life. I've basically invented a whole career for myself by creating an organization and being part of an emerging field of community-based health. And that's a very radical idea in other countries. In more rigid societies, uh, even in many parts of Europe, it's hard for people to really see how they could switch careers. And I found that people in Egypt were really eager to hear how we do that. The practical aspects of civic engagement and civil society, the, the money, you know, how do you actually raise money? In our case, we actually earn money as well. How does the independent sector work? 
But then also, how do you really pursue dreams? We found all these young, uh, articulate women who were doing various kinds of community engagement, but also wanted to write about their own lives. And we actually connected them with a a U.S. organization that works on uh, helping women writers. And then, you know, so one of the things that naturally occurred to me was, well, I run Parks and People in Washington. Why isn't there a Cairo Parks and People? You've got the Nile there. The Nile is perhaps one of the most magnificent potential parks in the world. And so we found people in Cairo who were excited about the idea of a Cairo Parks and People. There's some real fear in Egypt in the regime of what a nonprofit enterprise might do to threaten them. And so you have to be careful how you talk about that. But I think we can we can show how there's nothing frightening about the arts and people, that there are deep, there's a deep positive power and people coming together with the land and culture. And we saw that happening in wonderful ways. And we also saw ways that there were things we had done that could could help folks. We saw the cultural wheel program under an underpass uh, along a highway by the Nile, where there were people we found a whole Muslim boy band uh, practicing their a cappella singing, beautiful, beautiful singing. I took video of them and they wanted to come to America to share their song here. And it's the kind of interchange I think we need more of. I was really proud to see how these ideas that we had shared with Zainab, when she was a fellow with us, were being lived into reality in her work with kids in inner city Cairo. And how those ideas were things as simple as they were that could mean kind of radical transformation. So she was bringing us together with mentors of hers. We had an amazing afternoon-long meeting in an arboretum in town, which had been a scene of killing during the riots and the revolts and so forth uh, following the Arab Spring. And her friends and mentors were so eager to learn more about what we're doing. They saw the deep import of all of that. And so I was proud to see that these things we'd worked with could have such resonance with people in Cairo. And in turn, to see how the ways they had brought them alive and we're now running with them. I was just proud to see all that they could do to take that and turn it into really exciting kinds of change and opportunity for people. The project that Zainab was focused on was trying to go into places that had been forgotten, that had problems of trash and pride and disconnect and find a way to build appreciation for the historic site, but develop the stewardship among the young people so that people who didn't have much to do could find hope in their lives through some sense of pride in their heritage. And that was, that was her focus. I found the whole trip to Cairo to be a deeply affirming journey about this power of community, that this is not just a nice, warm, fuzzy thing that we pay lip service to. The community is something that can really make it possible for even people facing an oppressive regime to maintain their sanity and to find ways of lifting up health and joy and freedom in a lot of ways, even amid all the torment and all the struggle. That was a reminder for me that the work that we do 
in park-based health can be so powerful. And so I've tried to bring that to the communities I work with in inner city DC, and also reminding people just the privileges that we have and the kind of open society we have. We're, you know, we're good at criticizing ourselves and saying how we don't have power, we don't have equity, we don't have justice, but it really was helpful to see what people do who have even far less than we do. I find that we're mammals. We all want to bond with each other. We're all kind of reaching, trying to surmount our own fears of people who are different and deeply needing that bonding, that learning, that connection that happens when human beings who don't know each other come together, especially across the lines of race and color and religion and nationality and language. All of these categories that we've come up with to divide us None of us really want that. And I found so many ways of bonding with people. I don't speak Arabic, but I think that there is a universal desire for peace. I think there's a desire for understanding, for community, for sustainability of our earth. But I think there's also a universal desire for play, for fun, for joy, for silliness, and just, you know, the 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 power of discovery, of learning about cultures that are different from, from ours, people learning from me as I was there and me learning from them and all of that. more optimistic. You know, I was overwhelmed by many of the things I saw in Cairo, even just the the traffic. I'd never seen highways like that where there might be officially 12 lanes, but there's actually 22 in the way people are driving. It is a staggering moment in civilization to arrive in Cairo and see what it's like to have 23 million people living on top of each other and in this way of, you know, massive air pollution and, and all the kinds of strife and turmoil and challenges. And yet amid all that, to see, to see the joy, to see the kinds of simple decency, simple kindness, like I described, those are things that I have carried with me since and are lifting me up as we now seek to take our little formerly abandoned embassy and make that the embassy of the earth. Uh, as a place to share these stories. We actually occupy, uh, next to Meridian Hill, uh, an old embassy that was the embassy of Brazil, of Hungary, China had it, India wanted it, and now we're calling it the Embassy of the Earth. It's officially named after Josephine Butler, my mentor, but we're making it the Embassy of the Earth. We think the Earth needs an embassy in America, right here in D.C. You know, We need to find ways that we can connect more deeply and learn from each other. America has always been the shining city on the hill that offers so much for the rest of the world to learn from, but we have so much to learn too. We need that exchange.
really it was Zainab who inspired us to transform our former embassy into the embassy of the earth. And so that's that was pretty cool <laughs> to have somebody from Egypt seeing that there's a value in this idea of having something that celebrates the whole earth. Yeah, so Washington Parks and People owns, owns the building and uh, it, we own it debt-free. Uh, we've restored it with over 50,000 volunteers over the past 22 years. Uh, it's won all kinds of awards, but we want it to be something more. We want it to be this living museum and training place, learning place for celebrating the power of community and the land, of people and nature coming together to meet our most urgent and, and important needs. We have offices there where we're incubating charities, but we also have shared public space. We have public events, private events. I was married there and it's cool. It looks out on the park where we started work 29 years ago. And we think that it's a great place being in the most diverse part of the capital to lift up these ideas about how much we have to learn from each other. So the thing I learned in inner city Washington when we were at our worst is the same thing I learned when I was in the middle of Cairo. Even when we're at our worst, when the times look darkest, we have assets, we have options, as my father would have said. Uh, we have deep cultural assets and heritage and pride. We have deep natural assets. And so often what's happened in communities in America, as around the world, when uh, one kind of industry has died and jobs have been lost and people's pride has been eroded is people think they're they're on a, a dead-end street. And we forget about uh, the deeper value of our lives. Um, you know, a simple thing that we did early on in our work was to work with children from homeless families to plant flowers. And these kids had never seen living soil in their lives. And we took them out in the park and as we dug into that beautiful, black, rich soil of the park, they were scared to see these squiggly little snakes, they thought, in the dirt. They'd never seen earthworms or even knew about them. And then my friend Josephine Butler had to say, well, these guys are, they're, they're friendly. See, you can touch them. And then one kid said, I want to take him home as my pet. And she said, oh, no, you don't. He's got work to do. Because see this little guy here? He's making the soil rich so that soil can feed the roots of this tree. So the tree can make the leaves that make the air for you to breathe. And there was this moment of awe for that kid holding that little piece of the magic of life. And that's what we're disconnected with. When we think about our farmers who are flooded out across the farm belt right now, when we think about our miners dying of black lung, you think about these neighborhoods all over America where we have, we've gotten hopeless because we've forgotten the power of what we already have as a country, as communities. We forget about the heritage of our elders. We forget about the dreams of our kids. When we were on that crime patrol way back when, our rule was we had to say hello to everybody. It wasn't our rule. We learned it from African-American grandparents who told us, you got to do this. If you want to make a crime patrol, two things. They said, you can't carry a weapon or anything that looked like a weapon because the weapons are the problem. And you got to say hello because community is the answer. We didn't realize how much that simple act of saying hello, of being humble enough and present enough to just say hello to somebody who might scare you or be different from you. And as we said hello, we were learning those memories of the elders and the dreams of the kids that have inspired us to this day. I think America needs that. I think America often has lost its way for the future because we've forgotten who we are 
So I hope, I believe in my soul that the work happening in these places in Cairo, these places in inner city DC, it's the same work as people across middle America who are just trying to have a better life. And I think there's a lot we can all learn from each other. Twenty-two thirty-three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Worst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. Twenty-two thirty-three is named for Title Twenty-two, Chapter Thirty-three of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week. Steve Coleman talked about how his role with DC Parks and People eventually led him to Egypt as an ECA Professional Fellow. For more about Professional Fellows and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233, and while you're there, leave us a nice review. We really would appreciate that. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks to Steve for his stories and commitment to community. I did the interview and edited this segment. Featured music was Heartland Flyer and 100 Mile by Blue Dot Sessions. Hey Ruth and I'm Letting Go, both instrumental versions by Josh Woodward. How Deep is the Ocean by the Bill Evans Trio. His Last Share of Stars by Dr. Turtle, and Chipper Dan by Poddington Bear. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time.